morning, as I read from God's Word, Romans chapter 2, I'll read verses 5 through 16. Romans chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 5, Romans 2 verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law also will perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. Will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, our longing is that we might be those who are guaranteed the blessing appointed to those who are not merely hearers of the law, for all men have heard it in some fashion but that we would, by your saving grace and the Spirit at work in our hearts, be doers of the law, that we might be those who seek a better home, glory and honor and immortality in eternity, that we would not be self-seeking, but that we would obey that word of truth given to us in your word. First, to kiss the Son. And to seek through Christ Jesus the sentence of freedom and deliverance. O Lord, our longing is that in that day when all judgments will be rendered, we will be judged in the efficacious and meritorious righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Lord, even now, may that be our confidence and our hope. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'll begin, even as I wrote in the email, a quote from Matthew Henry's commentary. Still one of the best single-volume commentaries you can find. I recommend it. Having mentioned the righteous judgment of God in Romans 2.5, which I begin with, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath 
in the day of wrath. That refers to the end judgment, the judgment of all things when Christ, who has been given lordship of the kingdom now, will render according to our deeds either eternal paradise and joy or eternal death and condemnation. Paul illustrates that judgment, Henry continues, and the righteousness of it and shows what we may expect from God and by what rule he will judge the world. The equity of distributive justice is the dispensing of frowns and favors with respect to what is deserved and without respect to persons. Such is the righteous judgment of God. Now, here is why this principle is incredibly important for the day in which we live. There is a pervasive injustice that qualifies the spirit of our age. Whether you are either excused or your guilt is expanded and exaggerated based upon external circumstances like the color of your skin or how much money you make. This is how men think. This is part of our injustice and it forms the condemnation of those whom Paul has written against in the beginning of chapter 2. Those who know the law and instead of seeking to keep the law as a means of driving them to the cross of Christ, prompting repentance and faith, they look at those who are not quite so obedient to the law and they say, at least I'm not like that guy. The problem is, as soon as you begin to do that, judge by a standard other than God's judgment, you make yourself guilty of that standard and are therefore condemned by it. And so what all men are called to do is to submit to the righteous judgment of God. Now there is also another condition that is not unique to our own age, and you've perhaps heard it poised or prompted by this question, if God is so good, if he is a righteous judge, dot, dot, dot. And what they are endeavoring to do is to lay at the feet of the divine judge of all men, the one who sits above the heavens, who has revealed himself in creation, in natural law or natural revelation and in special revelation, they wish to accuse him of injustice. And when they do that, guess what happens? Well, what happens in human courts? If you have an impartial judge and you are pronounced guilty, what will happen? Your advocate will say, no, 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 no. I want that sentence to be thrown out. That was an unjust sentence because the judge that sits upon the stand is partial. Maybe he's the father of the person who was sinned against or the crime was committed against. But there is no such partiality with God. Based upon this standard, that the instrument by which God counts men righteous or wicked is revealed to all men, whether ever they have read a page of this or not. Because it is found not only in special revelation, it is found in... Everywhere you go. And not only that, 
It is not only outside of you, but it is impressed upon you such that you cannot escape it. The question is, what kind of men, women, children, will we be in light of that revelation? Will we be those who are just or unjust? Will we be those who not only hear the law but do it or hear it and ignore it? Let's look at that this morning. Two points. Two kinds of men. Two kinds of men. That's the first point. And then the second point is a little longer. Judgment under or apart from special revelation. Judgment under or apart from special revelation. Now, as it relates to the two kinds of men, there are two kinds of categories of persons described in verses 5 through 16, especially verses 6 through 16. There are those who are the unjust. They are those who are rebels under the law of God. They have hard and impenitent hearts. And in fact, in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. And then verses 8 and 9, we see those people mentioned again. Here's what they are described as. Those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And for them, there is a consequence of that. This is for, we'll see that in a minute, the judgment, every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, Matthew Henry also describes this category of persons, the unjust, and this is what he says. These are the objects of God's frowns, his displeasure. In general, those who do evil, more particularly described to be such as are contentious and do not obey the truth. Contentious against God, every willful sin is a quarrel with God. It is striving against our maker. It is a most desperate contention. The spirit of God strives with sinners and impenitent sinners strive against the spirit. Rebel against the light. They hold fast deceit. Strive to retain that sin which the spirit strives to part from them. God is by his spirit endeavoring through providences, through nature, yes, even through his word, as we will see, especially with those whom Paul calls the Jews, those who receive the revelation of God. What God is doing is wrestling against them in order to bring them to a place where they will say, my life is outside of the boundaries of the standard of God's word. And I am by nature a creature of wrath, and the only way in which I can be reconciled is if I let go of this sin that clings so tightly to my heart and I embrace Christ by faith. But the fruit of a hard heart is what? What does an unjust man look like? He is constantly contending against God's word, God's call. This is why all good preaching must have continually put before people and all good evangelism is a bringing people into an encounter with the righteous standard that they are guilty of breaking. Otherwise, what in the world are we presenting to them if they have not first come to the conclusion that they are condemned? 
Right? You must show man in their rightful, natural state. Now, the hard heart refuses to see it. They ignore it. And they may have insight and intelligence into other things. You don't have to be regenerate to go into space. But you do need to be regenerate to know not to call it space. It's not blank. It's not empty. It's what? It is filled with the knowledge and the voice of God. It's full We don't believe things happen by accident. We don't believe that we are here because we are some, um, we either ride on the back of a cosmic turtle or that we are some um, amalgamation of a mutated biological material. The whole riding into being on the back of a cosmic turtle is a sort of Eastern religion thing. I like turtles, but I didn't come from turtles. Thank goodness. But this is the fruit or behavior of a man who is rebellious. He hates the wrath of God. And everywhere he goes, he sees God manifested around him and within him. Now we'll get to the consequence of that in this life as well as eternal consequence in a moment. But let's talk about the second kind of man. In verse 6, we read of the one who by patient continuance and doing good seeks for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, Where? That's the question. The locus of priority. Where are we seeking for glory, honor, and immortality? Well, you won't find it in the OPC. I'm sorry. It's too small. You're going to have to run for office. But even then, if you run for office, you may have glory, honor, and immortality in one category of people, but not in another. If there's one thing that we cannot agree on as people, it's which idols are the best. And so this glory, honor, and immortality can only be satisfactorily, eternally found in the life that is to come. Laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And these are those in verse 10 who works what is good. They do what is good. Why? Because they are good. How are they good? Because they, by faith, have laid hold of the promises of God and the Spirit has come into their lives and the Spirit lives and works to produce in them fruit in keeping with repentance. There is no such person who has been justified who leaves their faith alone, on the shelf, in the closet, never be taken up again in works of obedience. These are the ones who are the justified. Those whom God, according to their works, will render them holy. Now we will talk about the nature of justification as we move through this book. But do not hear me say, even as I mention works that we hold to here at Reformation OPC, any idea that our works have anything to do with our being declared righteous. That's Christ's work alone. 
imputed to us. And that imputed righteousness is not only ours once we have grasped Christ for ourselves in time, on this earth, in our lives, but that immediate justification also is the same thing that will justify us in heaven one day at the last judgment. Okay, have I satisfied those who may be curious as to why I would even use the word works in a sermon? Because that is very out of fashion today. Now, we have the hard-hearted, the unjust. We have the soft-hearted, the obedient, the penitent. Those who endeavor to do God's will, the justified. Let's look at the frown and favor of the Lord in light of those two kinds of people. Now in verses 8 and 9, going back, we see that indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, is laid up for both Jew and Gentile who do not do what is according to God's law, his revelation, his will. But for those who have done what is good, who do believe and lay hold of the promises of God, you are laying up for yourself great reward. Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works. This is verse 10. What is good? Also to the Jew first and the Gentile. Why the Jew first and to the Gentile? Because they specifically in the Old Testament knew of the promises of God unto salvation before the Gentiles did. This is chronologically correct. It is categorically, covenantally, providentially correct. And so, having seen these two categories, those who reject the worship of God and do not do what is according to God's law store up wrath for themselves. Those who rejoice that the Lord has come and endeavor to keep covenant with the Lord through the person and work of Christ Jesus and what he suffered on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, they are laying up for themselves treasures that cannot be destroyed. It's simple. Personal wrath and divine displeasure. John Murray writes against those who will receive such wrath. Again, we found in chapter 1, verse 18, we cannot interpret this wrath of God as consisting merely in the will to punish, but expresses the positive displeasure of God as inflicted upon the ungodly. And this infliction apply, implies, as another commentator, Gifford, observes, that the sense of God's wrath will be a chief element or the primary element in the eternal destruction of the ungodly. God, Paul, excuse me, Paul is writing, the inspired words of God, is writing and he is clearly exhibiting this principle that any wrath that we receive is a personal wrath against God given to us. At the end of all things, when that condemnation is handed down, it will be a personal edict. You are guilty. You are guilty. Of what? Of rebellion under the law. Which law? Well, we're going to look at that in just a minute. But for those who endure patiently, as I've already said, glory, honor, and immortality. And in this way, though in order of revelation to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, as it relates 
to how God judges, there is no impartiality with God. That both Jew and Gentile are judged according to a standard that God himself has revealed and erected in his word. What that means is this. God does not judge by any other standard than his revealed will. And when it says no partiality, what Paul is saying is there's nothing about you that is a Jew, ethnically speaking, in that you come from a Jewish mother and you have Abraham's blood in your veins that makes you any more worthy of condemnation or favor. And also for the Gentile. That the standard of God is absolute. And he has no partiality. The problem with human judgment and this now sort of primacy of social justice and social equity, whether it is ethnically based or racially based or based upon sex or class, is that it is categorically unjust. And I think we can admit that. Well, I would hope you would admit that. Depends on how much of the world you've imbibed and taken in. And so what we need to understand is that standard doesn't fly with God. You cannot run from the truth of God and be free. And you cannot stand upon the law of God while breaking it, accuse others of doing it, and be free. You must flee to the cross of Christ. Now that leads me to my second point. Judgment under or apart from special revelation. Now I'm going to reverse the order as I look at these things. Let's first look at judgment apart because that is, that is how Paul moves. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. This is verse 12. And as many as have sinned in the law or under the law will be judged by the law. Now, let's look at the Gentiles first. The Gentiles are the category of those who, historically speaking, were not the covenant people of God. Though they did receive, many of them, the Egyptian people when Israel was in the land, what did the Egyptians see? God's special revelation. And what made that revelation special was not just that they saw miraculous things done in creation, but Moses was interpreting those things and saying to Pharaoh, my God is doing this to you. That's preaching. Preaching is taking natural law and interpreting it through the revelation of God. And so many Egyptians fled with Israel out. They were converts. And in fact, the mission and work of Israel was not to be so secluded from the nations that they were not to go out and convert them and bring them in. The problem with the Jews was... They went out and took the gods of the pagans and brought them into their temple. They didn't take the temple and take what was being done at the temple out to the nations. They inverted the purpose for which they had been called. Now, Gentiles, they are condemned without special revelation. That is what Paul means here. And the way in which they are condemned without special revelation is that God has placed the law not only all around them, but he has placed the law a kind of natural understanding or summary even of his moral law given in Exodus 20, and he has put it in their hearts. 
so that they themselves, even in their consciences, when they have that twinge of guilt, that is what condemns them. They knew it all along. Which is why natural man seeks to unmake creation as the Bible calls it. And they seek to undo even their own bodies as God has given it to them. What we are seeing right now all around us, especially in the wealthy, arrogant West, is man trying to rip apart the fabric of God's creation and then knit things back together in this Frankenstein way and say, isn't it beautiful? Isn't this beautiful? And what you as a Christian are called to do is not say, well, we need to make room for that filth in our culture. What we need to say is, Christ can set you free from that Frankenstein kind of life where you try to take all of these disparate moral ideas and put them together because what they end up with is something that is the stench of death. And the evidence of their condemnation is so close to their faces. This is why when we go out and we preach to pagans or heathens, those who maybe have never grown up with the gospel and who do not know, what does Lewis say in his uh, Mere Christianity? We may go to people who disagree with how many wives we may actually have, but you will never meet a man that will ever say, that's not my wife. What is Lewis saying in Mere Christianity? There is always a place to appeal. I'm getting hot, sorry. A place to appeal to sinful man as it relates to some facet of the law of God. Go there. That's the point of contact. And so as Paul is writing to the Romans, he wants them to know that the gospel according to the word of God is a gospel that is necessary for all nations. The reason why Paul has to go to Spain is because Spaniards will not be judged according to another standard. Otherwise, why would we go? Why does the Bible say go if God judges heathens more gently than those who've heard the law? Why do we not want to say don't tell them anything? Sometimes we parent this way, right? And our kids grow up and they don't know how to handle life because you've not put life in their, front, in their faces. In fact, when I was in seminary, um, Dr. Richard Pratt came and he said, not a single man among you should ever go into the ministry and have never seen a person die right in front of you. You need to watch the life of someone pass away right in front of your eyes so that you know exactly what's at stake in the ministry of the word. And I'm going, well, okay. How do I arrange that? How do I make that happen? Can you tell me? I guess just go do nursing home ministry, right? At some point, it's going to happen. Or you've seen someone who is at the very precipice of that. Every man, every day, live according to that reality. They know that death is coming. Do not be fooled by the sophisticated methods of the Gentiles. Because the law condemns them too. Now, what about the Jews? Well, the Jews are easier in this regard. They are condemned through the law. They were at Sinai. This Genesis to Malachi 
was written specially to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Now it's our book too, because we are the spiritual Israel. We are the covenantal continuation of all that God has done in history. Here's the problem. It's already too late for you. If you wish to be judged by another standard, which will also put you in hell, you've heard the word. And you've heard it from a very... And parents, this is what you should want for your children, is the promises and the warnings of Scripture. And the warnings are a blessing, frankly. The warnings remind us of what? That the stakes are high. We don't just fool around with this life that God has given and say, one day I'll repent. And so when Paul speaks of those who will be judged by the law, he refers to judicial judgment pronounced, and he also implies the destruction that comes as a result of the law. Now, what he is not talking about is that the law is the instrument of destruction. And this is why many people hate the law, because they think the law is the instrument, like a hammer that bring is brought down upon us. No, the law is the instrument of judgment. God is the one who brings destruction, because he is judge. It used to be in the early church that many theologians said that in order to be saved, what Christ is doing is he is actually buying us back from the devil. That is not true. What Christ is doing is he is satisfying the wrath of the Father against our sins by becoming sin for us. And so for those who know the law, and fail to do it, they too are condemned. Everywhere you go then there is law. Everywhere you go. And it's not just environmental, is it? It is written upon our hearts. Even our children, who are from birth, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, who are wrapped up and overwhelmed by this idea and the real reality of original sin though they are born covenant children and though there are things about them that are absolutely wonderful in all their little personalities there are moments parents you've seen it little flashes that cause you to shudder and go whoa that kid has a wicked heart you know a retaliating punch or a slap, or a screaming, or a tattletale. What do you think tattletaling is? It's Romans chapter 2. And do you think for a moment that what serves to satisfy the populace now on earth, do you think God will for a moment hear the case of someone in heaven and go, but God, God, he committed 7,421 sins on Monday. I committed 5,205. And God would say, oh, welcome to purgatory. No, there's no such thing, is there? Right? That's what's happened. You have a group of people who've actually invented a place that does not exist in order to deal with sin because they don't lay that sin at the cross of Jesus Christ in full. It's more justifying according to a standard that God has not revealed in his word. 
It's more partiality, the idea even of purgatory. Now, Paul here in verse 13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. Paul is not saying that the actions and responsibilities of men are to be counted as justifiable righteousness. But rather, God gives the status of being just before his holy tribunal. And this declaration that you are just is built upon a life in whom there is the real act of God's justifying grace and a life that displays that work that God has done in you. A just person is an obedient person. An unjust person is a hard-hearted person. So here is why Paul then includes this section. Man seeks to rebel. Man accuses God of injustice. Man does this in order to excuse his own sins and weaknesses by placing the onus upon God the partial judge. And Paul says, no, you cannot do this. In fact, all the world stands condemned. Whether you have heard the law and you know about the coming Messiah and have rejected him and you said, crucify him, which are the Jews, or you as a Gentile are hanging out in some other country thousands of miles from the epicenter of God's revelation and you're just eating each other and you're killing your children and you're just kind of hanging out, right, in the plains of North America... And you have no idea what's going on in terms of covenant history. But God has his eyes set on you so that one day this little group of people will come and they'll bring the gospel to you. But even before the gospel comes, even before you hear the word, you cannot say, I did not know. God says, that will not hold up in court. Because you knew. And the way that you know, I know that you know, is because I see that into your very heart, you did that thing and you went, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. That's the condemnation of the law written in our hearts. So what we must be assured of is this. That when your children ask you this question, how will God judge those who have never heard the gospel? Because that's an important question. In fact, two weeks ago, in my middle school Bible survey class, that was the question that got the whole class off topic. Because I can't just say, I'm not going to answer that question. And then it got into the issue of repentance. And what should we be doing with the word? I said, the fact that God does judge those who've never heard means you and I have got to get off our pews where we're seated and we've got to get out into the world. Because he's not going to say, well, you've never heard. No, he will say, your own heart condemns you. And the onus of the presentation of the gospel is upon the church. Because if God's judgment is perfect, then the only way to flee that judgment is what Paul says here at the end in verse 16. In that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, all men are judged in the cross. 
And our hope is that as we take the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the nations, God will, by his spirit, give faith to some of those hearers. All we can do, though, is call men to repentance and faith. And to stand upon this great word. God will not practice injustice. He never has. He never will. And for this reason, all men stand condemned. And again, Paul makes his point clearly that he made in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Here it is. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Let's pray. Lord.